you would stand for the reading of God's word, please. Scripture will be Genesis chapter 26, verses 12 through 35. Genesis chapter 6, I'm sorry, 26, 12 through 35. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped at the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. And so he said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. Just as we have not touched you, and have done nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace, you are now blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank, and in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and they said to them, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rachel and Rebekah. You can have a seat. Thank you, Jeff, for for reading. I just want to bring everyone's attention to the Jeff's service to us, despite allergy problems, in getting out the, those words. <laughs> that is uh, that's tough. Let me pray. We'll look into God's word, Lord. Would you give us insight today, not only into your word, but into our own hearts? Would you help us to rightly apply your word to our own lives? Would you give us uh, faith to, to trust your word and the different things that we have that are pressing on us? and in the places where we find opposition. Thank you, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, last week we saw that this chapter, chapter 26, 
is giving us a little bit of like father, like son. Isaac had moved due to famine, just like Abraham had once moved due to famine. Isaac moved among the Gerarites, and he pretended his wife was his sister, just like Abraham had. We saw that God established a covenant with Isaac, commanding Isaac to obey as Abraham had obeyed, and Isaac still makes his father's mistakes, and yet God protects Isaac just as God had protected Abraham. So last week stops and this week picks up, and we continue in this uh, compare and contrast, if you will, between Isaac and Abraham. If you remember in the story of Abraham, God had provided for him, and that provision had resulted in Abimelech seeking a peace treaty with him. Abraham had settled a dispute at that time about a well that he had dug, and Abimelech had given him the rights to the well, and that place was called Beersheba. It was near Gerar, and so I want to remind you of this history because obviously it makes a difference as we study this passage today. And we recognize during that sermon, uh, whatever, how many weeks ago that was, we recognized that a well of water was essential to life in those days, right? Really, I mean, in any days, if you're out there and you, the desert and the wilderness, you, we all need water to drink. You don't have faucets, a tap to go to, and so a well is pretty essential. Just as God's Word is essential to our lives, and through it, through the well, God blessed Abraham, and through the well, God blessed Isaac, and through the well of his word, God continues to bless his people. Isaac had long since left those wells, but now, due to famine, he finds himself driven back into that same area where Abraham had once dug all of these wells. And as we chart Isaac's life in comparison to Abraham, we might wonder Will God provide for Isaac like he had provided for Abraham before? Considering especially that this time there's this added wrinkle of of the famine. Now, spoiler alert, you know, ruin the, the movie before we get to the end. Yes, the answer is yes, God does provide, but not without opposition. Not without opposition. In Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, the prophet Amos declares that there will be a famine in the land. Famine of a different sort. A famine of God's word. At that time, the time of Amos, people had, the people of God had so ignored God's word and his commands that God made his word scarce, it says. Even if people searched for God's word being proclaimed, they would find it difficult to hear it. They would find it difficult to find it. And I wonder if today something similar is happening in our day and age. For in a similar famine, even among Christians, the pulpit of your average church in America provides maybe at best what we would call scripture light. I remember talking to an old youth group student that I had, and he was connecting with me, and I was asking him how it was going. He was an adult now. He was married. He moved to a new city, and I was asking him, hey, did you find a church? And well, we, we tried out this one church, but I don't think we're going to go back. Oh, why is that? And I press in, and he doesn't kind of want to share, you know. He's trying to be as charitable as possible. He doesn't want to, you know... Uh, he doesn't want to be gossiping or something of that nature, and I, but I pressed, as I do if you've talked to me, and, and uh, what's going on? Well, the sermon just, I don't, I'm just not sure it's, you know, a, a real great, well, what do you mean? Well, the sermon really was you know, I just, and, 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 to be honest, like, the sermon just really wasn't, well, it wasn't about, actually about Scripture. Well, I, that, no way. 
What are you talking about? It's impossible. This is my, me, what I'm saying to him. He says, well, actually, the sermon had three points, but all three points were based on a quote from a random person. No way. That's not, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen. So I pressed. What church is it? I don't want to say, right? In, in good nature, he doesn't, he doesn't want to share. No, no, really. I want to hear this sermon. I've got to. I don't believe you. Finally, he sends me the link. I listened to it. No joke. A quote that they had, he had, the pastor had broken into three parts, and each point was a different part of this quote. And barely was there a piece of scripture sprinkled in every once in a while. I, only, I could only listen to two-thirds of it before I was so frustrated. I had to turn it off that God's, the, the pulpit in a church would be so misused and mishandled. Scripture light. That whole story was extra. There you go. The shelf in our Christian section of bookstores has more Jesusified pop psychology in it than Scripture in it. We have a hard time, Christians have a hard time reading Scripture throughout the week, and yet they find themselves all caught up on the Joe Rogan experience or the Daily Wire. My suspicion is that while we value God's Word, we've started to think that the Bible, maybe it worked great at one time. Maybe it worked great when most people kind of accepted it. But today, with our challenges, with new discoveries and technologies, it just doesn't quite provide all that we need. It doesn't quite provide all that we need for faith, for following Christ in this day and age. The things our world is going after, friends, they are self-destructive. They are a mirage in the desert. A well, it's always critical. But during a famine, if you have water, it stands out. And Christian, let me tell you, in today's day and age, if you have the water of God's word and you continue in it, it will stand out and God will bless you through it and people who don't have it will not like it. They will not like it. So the question I want us to ponder this morning is this, especially in lean times, especially in these lean times, where do we seek God's provision? And what if that provision invites opposition? So this morning, I want to walk us through this story, and then I want to give us a couple of implications and a couple of applications for our lives. We start in verses 12 and 13, and we see, as I said, that even in the midst of a famine, God prospers Isaac. God blesses him, in fact, in a way that he never even blessed Abraham. I mean, he blessed Abraham tremendously, but never to the extent that Abraham was pushed out of the land because he just had too much. Verse 14 says that they envied Isaac. Many retaliate by filling the wells that Abraham had dug, those wells that Isaac ought to have had the right to use now, but they filled them in. Abimelech, he takes a more politically measured approach. He just sends him off. You know what? You got too much. Like, could you just get out of here? I just don't want to be around you. So Isaac ventures out away from Gerar, and he starts redigging his father's wells, it says. The wells that have been filled in. And he names them what his father had named them. You see, not new names, but the old names. The names that carried with them the memory of what God had done for Abraham at that time. See, all these wells were named not 
just random names that were picked out of the blue, but names that meant something that related to what God had done and what he had done and related to his character, who he was. And so every time you went to the well, you remembered this is who God is. This is what God does for his people. And so this should have reminded everyone of the treaty that had been made in the past of God's provision for his people. But Isaac continues to be pushed out through the valley, and he digs new wells. But then quarrels arise between the herdsmen of Gerar and Isaac's herdsmen. And the first well he names contention because they contended with him there. It's not real original names, I'm not saying that, but they did have meaning. So he leaves it behind, and he goes on, and he digs another well, and this one's enmity, right? And because, again, there's quarreling, and he leaves that behind. And Now, I want you to understand uh, the, no, the task of digging a well. It's no easy task. I mean, it's, it's a fairly simple thing, right? Shovel. I guess they had shovels. You just dig. It's a fairly simple thing, but if you've ever dug a hole you know it's not easy to do. It's hard work to do. But he keeps doing it. And finally, he gets to a third one, and they leave him alone. It's far enough out. You can kind of chart this. If you look at a map of, 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 of that area, you kind of chart his movement out from Gerar to, towards Beersheba, and it gets farther and farther away. And finally, it's far enough away that, that they leave him alone, and he names it Room because he has room there. But Isaac continues on, and he ends up in Beersheba. And, and that matters. The name matters because this is where Abraham had made the oath with Abimelech originally, where those rights to the wells had been given to him. And if you remember, Abraham plants a tree there, and I wonder if, I wonder if as Isaac is going along, he doesn't see that very tree and stop and set up his tents under it. And that very night, that very night he shows up there. And that matters. God didn't speak to him until the very night he showed up in that same place that God had spoke to Abraham and done for Abraham before. God says to him in verse 24, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Do not be afraid. It seems to indicate that his motivation for abandoning the previous wells that he had dug, it's not merely to keep the peace or to be a nice guy. that there's a timidity in his spirit rather than staying firm for what was rightfully his and trusting God. And yet God continued to bless him. Every time he dug, he hit water. Why is that? For I am with you, the Lord says. See, Isaac responds with worship and he settles down there and he starts to dig a well when Abimelech shows up. And this is a tense situation, right? Verse 27, why have you come to me? Why have you come to me with your commander of your army? You sent me away and now you're coming to me? But Abimelech's words emphasize the big point here. We see plainly now that God's with you. You can kind of read in this, God was with your father and we can see now that, he's, that that's passed on to you. He's with you now. It's no coincidence that he was so blessed in Gerar or that all along the way, every time he digs, he hits water. God's presence is with him. And so they strike a peace deal there and Isaac stays, not just because there's room now, but because God has actually brought peace to him. And that same day, the servant comes to him and tells him, hey, the well we were digging, it's successful. We hit water yet again just as God had commanded him to obey 
God's commands and laws as Abraham had obeyed. Isaac had gone back and he redug his father's wells, remembering God's covenant promises, which included those commands all the way to Beersheba, and God provides even in a famine, and the basis for that provision is not something in Isaac, but it is God's presence because of His covenant. And friends, God has a new covenant with us through Christ. Jeremiah 31, 33 states this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And in Hebrews 10, 16, it says that this is the covenant that comes from the one-time sacrifice of Christ. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to this truth. We have the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in us as a guarantee for God's, of God's promises and a guide into God's truth. And through the Holy Spirit, God writes this on our hearts. And so to use an analogy from our text, when we dig into God's word, when we dig into his law, when we dig into his commands, we know it's the right place to dig. We know we will hit water. We will hit water. And it's not always easy. Listen, obeying God's word, it's not easy. But it it is actually pretty simple. Oftentimes, it's far simpler than we give it credit for. We just don't want to do it. And I know oftentimes I look at someone else and I think, you're going, oh, I don't, I don't know what that, I'm going, look, God's word is so simple, it's just this. But then on the flip side, there's areas where I'm going, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do, I don't know. And someone else is looking at me going, Cody, it's really simple. God's word just says this. And then when I really think about it, I go, oh, it is that simple. I just want to make it complex because I don't want to do it. Because that's going to be hard work to get my shovel out and start digging. It's going to be real hard work. I'm, I keep looking for a different way that's easier when it really is just shoveling. Listen, the bottom line is this. God's blessings aren't determined by an absence of opposition to us, but by the presence of God with us. And so we dig sometimes, and opposition comes, and we feel like, man, this is so hard. These things are coming against us. But God's blessing is not determined by the amount of opposition against us. It's determined by God's presence with us. And I want to clarify something. God's blessing can be both material or spiritual provision depending on what God knows we actually need. See, sometimes I think I know what I actually need, but God knows better. Let me give you two examples from my own life, from from man and I's life, of God's provision. Uh, when, when Ryder was born, uh, his due date was at the end of September, but we had some medical things that happened, some medical issues. That's a whole other story. Um, by God's grace, uh, we were able to, to figure that out. And, uh, but Ryder was born one whole month early. Now, now, here's where that gets interesting. You see, we had saved up the money that we needed to pay our deductible that we were going to max out because of, you know, you know, it's expensive, right? Having a baby is expensive. But the end of our insurance year was the end of August. And so since he was born on August 28th, rather than September 28th, and since we had medical issues and they were both in the hospital for one whole week, which if you're doing the math, extends into the next medical year, insurance year, we maxed out two deductibles in one week. 
And so the $4,000 that I thought I was going to have to pay that I had so diligently saved up for suddenly became $8,000. And I thought, I have no idea. I have no idea. We're going we're gonna to drain our emergency fund. I have no idea where this money is going to come from. I thought, God, I thought I was, you know, uh, trying to be a good steward of what you've given me, and I had planned ahead, and I had done all these things, and I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to trust God. We're just going to start paying these bills off, and, and, and I'm, look, I, to this day, I still don't understand. I added and added and re-added. I'm not an accountant, but I know how to add, um, and somehow we paid each and every bill, and I got to the end of them, and we never touched our emergency fund. Not once. And I thought, this doesn't make sense. And so I went back and I redid the math. Like I'm adding it up, and it, but this doesn't make sense. And, and I can only tell you that it, it, it was God's provision in miraculously putting those things together. Now, let me give you another story. Lest you think that God will always just give you the money you need. Let me tell you another story. We bought our first house a couple years later. And let's just say, um, as happens with homeowners, we bought more house than uh, perhaps we realized we could afford. And we got a couple months in, and uh, our monthly budget, it, you know, it wasn't... We were, we were getting to the end of our budget before we were getting to the end of the month, let's just say, Right? And so we were bleeding out. We were having to steal from our savings account just to make the monthly budget work, even though we had cut basically everything out of our budget. We were, we were eating beans and rice, if you know what I mean. And for months this went on, and I got so anxious, so anxious about how, how were we going to figure this out. And, and just so you know... To add to this, the church that I was working at had decided, this is kind of post-2008 and all the financial stuff that happened there, uh, had decided to not give anyone on staff raises for three straight years. So when I got into ministry, newly out of college, no kids, newly wed, not looking to, you know, I thought, man, I'm, I'm making it rich with this, you know, whatever I was making, right? But three years later, no raises, now I've got two kids, I've got a mortgage, I've been doing this ministry thing for a while, like, like I am grossly underpaid, right? Going, man, what am I going to do? But the lesson I needed to learn wasn't how I had, had this injustice done to me, but about the idols in my heart regarding what kind of house I really needed and who I was trusting for my finances, that's the lesson I needed to learn. I needed that more than I needed a raise. And that has paid dividends for a decade. Now, by God's grace, additional income did not come. Actually, by God's grace, he provided a way for us to get out of that house with minimal damage. And that's what needed to happen. And when we went to look to buy another house, we bought less house. That's what we did. Because God had taught us that lesson. So, God's blessings, sometimes material, sometimes spiritual, aren't determined by an absence of opposition to us, but by the presence of God with us. Let me give you an, two implications and two applications real quick. Implication one, God's blessing can lead to jealous opposition. Jealousy makes us do and say stupid and illogical things, right? Can we all agree with that? I have said and done stupid and illogical things because of jealousy. Here recently, the city of Boston between 2005 and 2017, had allowed 284 nonprofit groups to fly whatever flag they wanted to fly at City Hall for a day. 
And out of 285 requests, one request was denied. Do you want to guess what flag was going to be, that organization was going to fly? The Christian flag. The Christian flag. Now, I don't know. Uh, They said that the Christian flag represented um, values that didn't match with the city of Boston. And maybe all 284 other organizations just, you know, lined up perfectly. But my guess is that there's a little more to the story than that. Now, thankfully, that had to go all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no, city of Boston, you don't get to do that. And so, thank God that 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 happened. But my point here is to say that there's no denying that great prosperity has come to America and to Western civilization through a general, though clearly imperfect, adherence to Christianity. And yet, like Isaac, both our sins and our successes can create opposition. I could tell you a story from my own life. One time when I was, uh, first, first job, same, same job that I had, um, I was on the staff, we were on a trip, we were having a conversation, somehow the conversation got into uh, cars, and I just said, yeah, I've been thinking about it, and I think, I just don't think it would be good stewardship for me to ever have a car loan. So, man and I plan on never having a car loan ever in our life. Yeah, and I was working with a bunch, I'm 25-ish at that time, I'm working with a bunch of people that are 40s and 50s, and they laughed at me. I mean, I can remember, I, I felt so small in that moment as they just mocked me for having this commitment and said, oh, oh, you're 25. Oh, well, when you're 30, when you have a couple of kids, when you get older, then you'll learn. Then you'll know. You can't live without having a car loan. Well, I turned 38 on Tuesday. I've not had a car loan ever, and I don't plan on having a car loan ever. Thank you very much. I will walk to work if I have to. That's what God, if, that's, if I look at the text and I go, you know what? This is the application that I think will be most faithful to what I think God is calling me to do, then that's what I'll do no matter the opposition that comes up against it. But listen, knowing that God's blessing can lead to this kind of opposition, and yet knowing that our blessing is based in God's presence with us, not in the absence of opposition, we don't need to lash out in desperate anger or bitterness towards someone else like a cornered animal, right? When that jealous opposition comes, we don't need to respond like the world responds because we know that God is with us. And we know that that opposition can't stop God's kingdom and it can't stop God's blessing. But also, we don't need to give up the wells that we have a legitimate right to keep. You see, too often what I see today is not just Christians giving up the truth that has so blessed the church and so blessed the world for centuries, but actually filling in the wells ourselves. How can we keep from falling prey to those kinds of mistakes, to those, these kinds of ideas that are spun to sound so good? Well, I think our first application is this. We need to redig the wells. We need to redig the wells and remember what they're named. You see, God's word is our foundation for truth, and I'm, I am. We need to be reading God's word, and we need to be checking everything by scripture. And I hope and I pray that you do. But that shouldn't keep us from learning from Christians who have gone before us, from learning how, what they have learned from studying the scriptures and how they have lived their lives for God. We don't need to restart that study. We need to tap in to those faithful Christians who've been faithful to God and his word who have gone before us. And we need to learn from the mistakes they've made so that we don't redo them. Church, 
What we need to do is we need to learn how to read. We need to learn how to read. And some of you, especially you guys I talk to, you don't like to read. I get it. I don't like to, I, I didn't like to read. I didn't like to read either. But, but if that's you, like I was one day in the past, I've got some profound wisdom for you right, right now. So just, you know, listen in. God decided to put his revelation of who he is in words. So you better start liking reading. He decided to put, for whatever reason, the revelation of who he is into words on a page. So you should start liking to read. It would do you well to like reading. It is a learned skill, and it is a taste that can be acquired. Beyond God's Word, we need to read two things, I think. We need to read good Christian books. We need to read good Christian books. If you are a new believer, here's what I'd say. If you're a newer believer or you feel like, man, I'm just not real spiritually mature, don't read new books. Don't, don't read books uh, that have been written in the last few years. Read books that have been written 10 or more years ago where solid Christians have read them and reviewed them, where they have stood the test of time. I can't tell you how many books. We were just talking about this the other day. When I was in college, gosh, almost 20 years ago, or yeah, 20 years ago now, how many books were popular at that time, and now today we would not recommend them to anyone because the writers and the books themselves aren't even seen as orthodox Christianity anymore. But man, they were all the rage at one point. Don't read new books. Read old ones. Avoid the Christian self-help section. You don't need to wash your face or have your best life now. Okay? You don't. You need to know who God is and what His Word says. If that book isn't laced with Scripture, put it down, pick up a different one couple of recommendations for you. I just got this little spot here. So, um, uh, This one is a really great one. If you're a newer believer especially, Gospel Primer, just laced with, God, with Scripture. Um, back in the back, I've got a bunch of these little pamphlets. They're like a part of the book, um, and you're free to take one of these. But it's just a part of the book. Throw it in your Bible. Read, read a section of it every day. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, let's see, what else do I got? Um, knowing God, if you want to, if you want general theology, who is God? What's he all about? This book will blow your mind, okay? It's, it's, a, it's a little more intermediate. It's a little harder. Uh, not terribly hard. You can do it, but it is worth every minute. Um, let's see, what else do I got? Uh, the Pilgrim's Progress. Every Christian should read this book. Period. I don't, this particular copy, I don't like the formatting as much, but, but it's fantastic. Yes. You want to read it, right? Okay. I'll get you a copy. Okay. Uh, spiritual Disciplines for a Christian Life. If you'd never thought about what spiritual disciplines, that's a great book. I'm just going to leave all these up here. You could take any of these. If you want one, if you promise you'll read it, take it. Uh, the other thing we should read is Christian history. Now, this book I'm not giving away. You have to buy this on your own. But uh, one of the books I really like uh, that I've read in the last couple of years is by John Piper. It's called 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. It's basically 21, uh, it looks huge, don't worry. It's 21 different little short things. So it's, it's broken down. And it's 21 biographies of Christians uh, through from 380 to 1800 or whatever. Um, it's fantastic. 50 pages, you can learn all about what God's doing in someone's life, the mistakes they made, the ways they were faithful, how God worked. Um, I highly recommend that as well. So, all right, that's my thing on reading. Implication two, God's blessing depends on God's faithfulness. I said earlier, Isaac was abandoning the wells every time that conflict came. 
you know, and perhaps Isaac was just trying to keep the peace. I think when we look at his life overall, that we get an indication that perhaps he was a little bit timid. Perhaps he was not stepping up to what God had called him to do. But either way, we know two things. We know that he kept digging wells and God kept giving water. That we do know from the text. And God had reminded Isaac in verse 5 of his faithfulness to Abraham's obedience which would have been remembered and memorialized in all of these wells, right? And so Isaac is obedient to dig, and he reveals his faith in the Lord as he continues to dig well after well after well. See, the focus is on Isaac's faith in God through digging, not whether he always did the perfect thing once the well was dug. The focus for us is that we keep going back to God's word. Our faith is revealed by our desire to continue to seek, to know God, and to obey him, not by whether we messed it up in the past. Not necessarily by whether we always handled it rightly afterwards. You see, sometimes we misunderstand God's word and we do the wrong thing, even when we mean to do the right thing. Sometimes we misapply God's word. We know the right thing. We don't do it or we know the right thing, but we wield it incorrectly. Guys, welcome to following Christ. We're going to mess it up. But the foundation of our faith is not our perfection, but Christ's perfection. We misunderstand God's word sometimes, but he is God's word. We misapply God's word sometimes, but he perfectly lived God's word. We mess it up, but we dig again. That's what we do. That's what God's people do. And God's blessing, it doesn't depend on whether we handled the last well correctly. It depends on God's faithfulness. And God is faithful to bring forth water in a dry land. And so if that's you today and you feel like you are in a dry land and you've messed some things up and you've, you've flubbed it up in the past, I want you to know God is faithful to bring forth water if you would just keep digging. And so that's my second application. It's really simple. Don't stop digging. Don't stop digging, friends. We need to recognize that God's word is the source. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the temptation from the world is that we we need to outsmart God somehow. Well, I can't figure it out. I I got to get some water, so I just need to outsmart God here. And this is especially hard when we've messed up in the past because now I'm tired and I'm embarrassed because I had dug a well and hit water I was obeying God's word, but then I abandoned it. Or I'm tired and frustrated because I dug for so long in the wrong places, and now what am I going to do? And some of you, it's hard because you feel like you were digging the well, and the Philistines filled it in while you were still at the bottom of the well. Right? Man, I feel like that sometimes. My encouragement to you is don't stop digging. And keep slogging on. Keep persevering. Like you've been seeking to share the gospel with someone and things seem to be going good and then you say something from scripture and they find it really offensive and it doesn't go very well and it's tempting to think, if I just, if I just don't share a couple of things from God's word, if I just replace it with something that's just a little bit more palatable, but friends, salvation is only found in Christ. Don't stop digging. When you're trying hard to be a better parent or a better spouse by God's word, what you see in scripture, and you you didn't know these things before, and you find resistance to the changes, the old mistakes get tossed back into your face, right? Or frankly, frankly, you just remember them and you're filled with self-doubt. I can't pull this off. I've been such a failure. Who am I to lead my family in prayer? Who am I to talk about God's word? Who am I to try to disciple my kids? Friends, don't stop digging. Don't stop digging. Or even when it comes to material provision, right? And we realize we ought to have been better stewards of the things that God had given us in the past and 
Our poor stewardship has kind of put us in a hole now, and I'd love to do what Scripture says, but frankly, I can't afford to give or, or whatnot. What if God knew that all along? What if none of this was surprising to him? What if when he wrote those words into Scripture that he knew the kind of situations we'd put ourselves in? What if the provision we really need is the killing of the materialism that's in our heart and giving is the way, is the tool that God wants to use to do that? Don't stop digging. Don't stop digging. See what God's word says. Start doing it now. See that he doesn't provide. I want to end with one last story. I talked about biographies in Christian history. Uh, One of my favorite stories that has ministered to me is is a guy named Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon, he preached at the same church for 50 years. His whole entire preaching career, one church. A legacy of faithful, consistent preaching that left an impact. In fact, I do a workshop on preaching every year that is named for him. Charles Simeon, he lived in England from 1759 to 1836. So he lived through the American Revolution, through the French Revolution, all the way until people were sending telegraphs and riding on railroads. His dad was no Christian. His mom didn't, they think that she died when he was really young because she's almost nowhere in anything that he talks about. And he, he attended as a child the top boarding school and he was known there for his well-dressed nature, his athleticism, and frankly, his pomp. He was a punk. His sinful excesses and his pride abounded. And at 19, Charles went to Cambridge University, and over the the course of four months, he was converted, notably without ever once meeting another Christian. In fact, for three years there, he never met a Christian. He was the only one that he knew. But from that point on, from coming to Christ, he moved his, he shifted his life from this life of pomp and, and kind of uh, expressiveness and in, in, in of himself to a very simple life, even though he was actually quite wealthy. And when uh, ch- there was a church there near the university named Trinity Church, a grand church, and he'd always walk by and he'd say, man, what would it be like if God would bless me to be able to preach there one day? Well, as coincidence would have it, or as God's providence would have it. The pastor there died about the time when Simeon was graduating university. Simeon's wealthy father, it's said, pulled some strings and got him the pulpit. Well, you can imagine, uh, it turned out that the congregation wasn't a fan of that, and wasn't a fan of this young whippersnapper coming in to preach. First, they wouldn't let him teach the Sunday afternoon service. Basically, they, didn't, they, they went out and paid extra to get a different Sunday school teacher. Then, they try, when he tried to start a Sunday evening service, they would come and bar the doors of the church so people couldn't come in. His own congregation. Then, then on Sunday mornings, they locked their pews. It sounds weird to us, but that was a time in which people would actually pay to reserve a particular pew, and these people would lock their pews so no one could sit. Charles Simeon would sit up chairs in the aisle just so the people who did come would have a place to sit, or people would have to stand to hear him preach. Can you imagine? This went on for 12 years. 12 years he continued to preach. 52 Sunday mornings. 52, Sunday nights, as, long, as well as everything else. People from the university, kids from the university would, would uh, uh, one time they attempted to jump him after service and beat him up. But by God's providence, he went out a different door than he normally exited. They would mock him at the university and tell, uh, uh, say that, oh no, that, that Charles Simeon, he looks like he really is so pious, but he's actually a really terrible person. If someone did come to Christ in his ministry, they would mock them in the city. Twelve years until finally he won over the congregation with his consistent obedience to God and consistent preaching of God's word. 
in his 40s after 25 years, when he started to think about, you know, I'm going to push until I'm 60 and then I'm going to retire, God struck him with an illness that left him barely able to speak at times. Can you imagine you're a preacher and on certain Sunday mornings you're brought down to a whisper in a time before people had microphones. For 13 years, he kept preaching every Sunday like that. Until at 60, the point at which he thought he would step back, he had decided, you know what, I am going to press on. And he writes that it was at that time, at this particular moment, that suddenly his illness was gone. And it was as if God told him, you planned to step back. But now that you've determined to press on in my work, I will double and triple, even quadruple your strength. And he preached for 17 more years, up to two months before he died. God gave him greater strength and energy than he had when he was 40. There's so much more that could be said about his life. But the point that I want to make is he just kept digging. It was his consistent diet and God's word himself, his obedience to it, and his preaching of it to others, and living it out in front of others that eventually won over a congregation and a community, and his legacy lives on. About God's blessing and provision in the midst of opposition, Simeon said this just a couple of years before he died, and this is what I want to end with. He said, quote, my dear brother, We must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you.